Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. That's the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. If you do not have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 900. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. As many of uh, the people up here have said, this is the final Sunday of 2020. And it's good uh, that we can worship together. Uh, I just wanted to just remind you of what Karen had announced that every year we have some kind of Bible plan reading or Bible reading plan rather. And if you'd like to join us this coming year, we want to do this one year Bible reading plan together. It's called the McShane Bible Reading Plan. You can find the actual website in which you can sign up to receive email alerts. But what you have to do is you have to say the start date is January 1st. You can't put today as the start date. So if you put the start date as January 1st on that website, what it does, and then you put in a time when you want the alert. So for me, it's, uh, a few of us have been doing this for many years, but for me, I put it at 7 a.m. That's when usually I wake up. And at 7 a.m., an email comes and the links to those passages come in. So you can just click on, say, Genesis 1, and then the second passage is Psalm 1, and things like that, and do your reading when you can. So it's really, really convenient. It's awesome that we can read the Bible together. But as a church, because we want to do it together, if you would like to participate and have this accountability group, then we'd like you to contact Ho Young Lim at hoyounglim at cgsnj.org. Just email him, and then we'll put you in the group together, and then we could all just encourage each other, keep each other accountable. I'm excited to start next year uh, with this goal of, as a church, reading the entire Bible together. Um, so with that said, let's pray before we start the message. Almighty gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, Grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to the last Sunday of 2020, it seems quite apropos that we come to a two-part sermon, uh, the second one being given at the first week of 2021. And as I've stated many times, I don't believe in coincidences, uh, but they still surprise me, um, or they give me a pleasant surprise, I should say. I like how on Christmas Day, the power would come on as soon as the sermon ended, and then from here, I can hear scattered like wows 
uh, across uh, the congregation. The only thing lit during that time, because we lost power during the sermon, the only thing lit was my face because of the iPad. We had no light. And I've heard many kids, actually, because we do have kids joining us for Christmas and Easter service, many kids had an easier time paying attention because it was like story time around a fire. But even if, uh, like, you know, it's been, it's been quite the interesting year. But even if I were to look back at 2020, you know, it's not a standalone uh, anyone paying attention couldn't say that about 2020, that 2020 stands alone. It stands on top of 2019. And 2021, of course, uh, won't be a tower by itself. It will undoubtedly stand on top of 2020. I state the obvious in hopes to remind you that what we do tomorrow will be affected by what we do today. What happens next year is affected by what we have done this year. And as the scriptures have taught us, if we have built our house upon the solid rock, the rains may pour down, the floods may come in, the winds may blow and beat on that house, but it won't fall because it was founded on the rock. What is this rock? In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And that was our year theme for 2020. Hearing and obeying God's voice. What assurance do we have that when the storm comes that we will still be standing. What assurance does your family have? What assurance does this church have that when the storm comes, we will still be standing? And so hear the words of Christ when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is why we stand upon the scriptures and the scriptures alone. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the scriptures the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which are both record and means of his saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. That was just an excerpt from our confessional statement. But this is our MO. It is our modus operandi. It is our mission statement, and it will never change. But I hope that when you do look back at 2020, you'll see that this is what we ultimately desire to adhere to in our church this past year. Um, because of the holiday season... I've come across multiple social media posts of family portraits, uh, many of you here, sitting here and joining us online, with a caption exactly like or similar to this, okay? This is the caption. Not a picture-perfect family, but it's my family. Uh, or something to that effect, like not a picture-perfect family, but this is my family. It's meant to be pithy, it's meant to be evocative. And I began to wonder if the same thing would be written of us, our church. Because what makes a family? 
Was it by choice? Was it by choice your family is your family? Didn't God put you together? So what about the church family? Was it by your choice? Then who put it together? And that is essentially what Paul has been addressing in the first letter to the Corinthians. This is a family, not in the world's idea of something like, yo, we family, or we family, or something like that. And it's not the world's idea, but this is a family that has been put together by Christ. In 1 John chapter 1, 5 to 7, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have been put together by the blood of Christ we have been called for fellowship with one another through Christ because of the light that we have been shown. This is a family that God has put together. And in one sense, Paul is showing us what that looks like in this letter. If we are a family, and it's not like the world's idea of family or even the world's idea of fellowship, what is it then? What is this biblical idea of family and fellowship. You know, two weeks ago I mentioned how in the beginning of chapter 9, um, that would be one of the most difficult passages a preacher could preach on because it's about supporting the preacher financially and materially. And just as I have mentioned last time, I wasn't speaking for myself, but when we go over the entire Word of God, when we go over verse by verse, chapter by chapter, when we go over book by book, we see that this revelation of God has been given to us for our knowledge and our good. It's good for us. And this part of the letter that we're going through right now in chapter 9, that's one more step. It's one more floor of this building. Like we're building on top of each other like I talked about. Like the years are built on top of each other. What we are doing is we are building on top of each chapter, each verse, this knowledge, floor by floor, in learning the Word of God. Uh, now, there may be some of you who are hearing from the series the, your first time, or you've come in here recently, and I just want to say, to let you in on what we've been talking about, is one of the main themes in the first letter to the Corinthian church is unity. Uh, we know that Jesus wants the church to be one. This is no mystery. This is in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Paul also says this in Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is unity in the body of Christ. This is what the scriptures emphasize. By the time we get to chapter 12 of this book, we'll see how God designs the body for unity and how this is shown to be beautiful, intricate, this mutual ministry that we have with one another in this body of Christ. 
And so this isn't just the, one of the main themes of Corinthians. It's actually one of the most important aspects of the Christian church. And yet we see people trying to come and harm this unity. Would-be believers would come in, even to our own church, and try to sow discourse, sland, discord, slander, and bitterness. And I thank God that he has protected us by giving us church elders and shepherds to guard this gate. But it's not just from the outside that would try to come in and disrupt us. It's even inside. Unity may not seem like it's happening the way the Lord would want. And throughout this letter, Paul gives reasons of why that's happening. It's because of these reasons fellowship gets fractured, the communion becomes corrupted, and we don't enjoy the oneness God has intended for his children. One of those reasons is because of the cult of personality. This is what drives politics today. It should not be a driver in the church. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? Are you not being merely human? This is a human mechanism. This cult of personality is a human mechanism. It does not promote or foster unity. It drives wedges and divides the church into factions and sects. And we saw in chapter 6, a discord and strife enter when Christians attack one another in the form of suing each other and taking each other to like secular courts. This is wrong as well. This too is wrong and they were defrauding each other and even your own brother. And so we come upon the third thing that we see in chapters 8, 9, and 10. What's this thing that is sowing discord and disrupting the unity of the church? It's freedom. And you're like, what? Freedom causing disunity? Another letter we see this happening is in Galatia. And the letter to the Galatians is basically an entire letter devoted to freedom or liberty in Christ. And after spending five chapters on Christian liberty, he talks about, Paul talks about where liberty ends. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, I've seen many churches uh, growing up as well, and as I'm sure you have, those that have grown up in the church, that when discord and disunity is sowed into the congregation, there is an implosion, a consuming of one another. And it's the sad vestiges of that membership that now try to go out and find another church. Paul is writing about how you have been called to freedom, but you are not made free so you can run out and do whatever you want. You are now free to do what? To love. Love then is the limiter of freedom. And just like I said, these physical limiters on our speaker system are there so it doesn't blow out the system when we raise our output to the maximum level. 
The limiter of love is placed on us so that we can make beautiful music. And Paul uses this illustration of wine in Romans chapter 14, 21. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Uh, I personally have nothing against good wine. In fact, I used to enjoy, in particular, a nice Cabernet. Uh, when, but when I first started working as a staff member of, this, uh, of the church, uh, training to be a pastor, I decided it'd be wise to give it up, right? As drinking is frowned upon in many cultures, and it was also true for the culture of the church that I worked at, uh, obviously because of its abuse. And I get that, I get it, because drunkenness is absolutely a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And so, one instance, uh, because, you know, we're, I'm, I'm abstaining from any kind of drink. Uh, one instance, I remember, it was one of the members here, he's watching online, so he knows what I'm talking about. Uh, members here took me out to a nice fancy restaurant in Edgewater. It's a nice uh, fancy steak restaurant. I think it was called Outback or something. No, it wasn't. It's better than that, right? There's a nice fancy steak restaurant in Edgewater, and to have a nice glass of wine with your steak is, mm, it's like dry and nice, right? And so I was graciously offered one by my host, but I declined. I thought I had to decline because I was like, who knows? Who knows? And then he responded to me, and I believe these are his words verbatim, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. He said, bro, what are the chances, right? And I just said, you never know. You never know. And sure enough, while we were eating, a throng of these Korean people from the church come and sit down to the table next to us, and we would notice them peering over the table to look to see if I indeed had a glass of wine in front of me. And now we just remember that time together and we can laugh about it. Because what were the chances, right? But this is what Paul is saying. Maybe I could drink a glass of wine in front of you and it's no big deal, it's no problem. But maybe to someone else in another culture, it would stumble him. They would think less of you as a believer. It would harm your testimony. And the same concept was shown to us in chapter 8. Maybe you think there's no harm in eating meat. You just yell protein and you gobble anything up, right? But what if you were in the house of a recently converted Orthodox Jew? Would you bring ham to the potluck? Just because you have the freedom to it, or just because you have the right to do it, doesn't mean we claim it for the sake of the love we have for the brother or sister. In Corinth, the Christians would see meat that had been offered up to idols and think, yum, protein, because meat is meat. Idols don't exist. God doesn't care about what you eat. In chapter 8, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, no better off if we do. It's not about the food. But some of the weaker Christians had just come out of a life of idolatry. When they saw meat that had been offered up to idols, they couldn't disassociate that with the pagan rituals involved with the meat, and it stumbled them. So even the strong Christian, who had every right and every freedom to eat that meat, he would limit himself 
based on the love he had for the weaker Christian, the weaker brother, the weaker sister. And two weeks ago, we went over how Paul then gives in chapter 9 a personal illustration. Let me show you an example, he says, and gives an example from his own life. In the first 14 verses of chapter 9, Paul goes over and establishes the right that he has as an apostle, as a preacher. He had these rights afforded to him from the world from custom, from culture, and most importantly, from God and His Word. He went over this exhaustively because, you know what? If you're going to make a case that this is your right, then you want to cover all the bases. And as we went over the last two weeks, he absolutely had this right. But, in verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Why didn't he make use of any of his rights? Because he did not want to hinder the gospel. Look at the word he uses. He would rather, words he uses, he would rather endure anything than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This word for obstacle, engope, engape is a graphic word. It literally meant to cut up, to interrupt. If you were an army marching down, uh, I'm sorry, if you saw an army marching down to your city and it had heavy artillery, it had carts with weaponry, food, supplies, what you would do is you would send out your own troops and what they would do is they would cut up the roads so that these carts and heavy artillery wouldn't be able to come to you because all the roads are cut up. That's the image. That's the word engape. That's obstacle. Rather than having anything cut up the way for the gospel to get to you, we endure anything is what Paul is saying. And for Paul and the Corinthians, what was that thing? It was money. The reason he didn't take support from them is because he would rather endure poverty and hunger than have his right be an obstacle to these weaker Christians. Because of what we've read, it looks like everyone from the other apostles, every single one of them, from even Peter to the other apostles to even Jesus' brothers, uh, they took support from the church. They took money from the church for themselves and their families. And it wasn't like Paul didn't ever take support from anyone. In Philippi, the Macedonians would give support to Paul. And we'll see later on that the Corinthians clearly misinterpret this, uh, that good people shouldn't shouldn't take support because he writes to the Corinthians again in the second letter clearing up that issue. But here in the beginning, he does not take support. And what's special or particular about this instance here is that there is no record of any apostle, any prophet, any priest, anyone who refused support like Paul did here. Even Jesus and his disciples had a money bag signifying that they would receive support. This is a particular instance. This is a special instance. Why? And I do think this is the reason why. Peter, the apostles, the brothers of Jesus, all of them ministered to whom? 
other Jews, other Jews. Who was Paul sent to? The Gentiles. The Jews already were accustomed to supporting financially the priest or prophet or any man of God. It's all over the Torah, so people knew how to support financially the man of God. But Paul is breaking into new territory. People who don't know the Torah, don't know the customs and cultures of God's people. He's breaking into new territory, Gentile territory. And this isn't Paul asking for money in a backhanded or indirect way either. He isn't saying, look, I know you owe me money, but you don't have to. You know, I'm okay if you don't. He's not saying that. He's like, I don't want your money. Don't give me your money. He's very, 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 very direct, and he's emphasizing that. He's not doing it in an indirect way like um, many of you might be familiar with Asian cultures, uh, asking for something indirectly. Like when you walk into a hot house, uh, you would say something like, man, it's scorching outside. And then you just stand there like that. Man, it's scorching outside. And then the host know to either turn on the AC or give you or offer you a cold beverage or probably both, right? Some of you think that example is insane, right? I was like, what? What is that? Uh, but this would be a way of honoring the host. This is an honorable way of addressing a need without disgracing your host, you put the host's honor above your needs. That's why there are all these customs and like responses that you could give even when receiving a gift or even giving a gift in Asian cultures. The gift giver repeatedly urges you to take the gift while the receiver acts surprised and denies it. This goes back and forth about three times until you accept and then everyone's happy. And then... You know, growing up, I always thought that was funny, but not, not so much anymore. As opposed to what? Is th that's funny as opposed to what? As opposed to your grandma offering you a 20 and you snatching it out of her hand, go, thanks, grandma, woohoo, I can finally get that new whatever. Is that the better way to respond? I'm not sure if our way is any better. Anyway, my point is that this is not Paul's ambiguous way to get people to pay him. He was serious. He's so serious. He says this, he would rather die. And the construction of the Greek sentence has it so that it looks like there's a break in the middle of it. So it would have sounded, if you read this sentence, it would have sounded something like, I would rather die than. No one will make the boast of mine an empty one. That's what it sounds like. I would rather die than no one will take this boast of mine. And it wasn't like he didn't need it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 11, he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. He was hungry and thirsty at the very time he was writing this letter. We are poorly dressed. That's the same word as naked. Buffeted. That means we are exposed to the elements and homeless. And this was the condition that he chose. He didn't want it to change. He didn't even accept a free meal. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8, he goes, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And again, it's not like he never asked for help or money. He did that. 
Later on, when the churches would mature, he demands payments for their ministers. But in this beginning stage, in Gentile territory, he didn't want to confuse people with the gospel and money. And so because of the breakup that we saw in the sentence, I would rather die. No one will take away my grounds to boast. There's a lot of emotion in that sentence. And the emotion expressed shows us how important this was to Paul. And you might be thinking, well, I I thought boasting was a sin. And some of you deeper thinkers might be wondering, where there's no humility in boasting, so even if it's not a direct sin, how can it ever be good, right? But here we see that while boasting can be a sin, it can also be a righteous act. It all depends on why you're boasting. The reason for the boast is what is key. The word for boasting here is kaukema. Kaukema occurs 11 times in the New Testament. And sometimes it's bad and sometimes it's good. Like in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are in his house if we indeed hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There it's a positive thing. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That word proud is kaukema. It's for boasting. The word Kaukema can be good, it can be bad. This is where context matters. Even in our language, we say to someone, maybe a younger kid, your child, someone, something like that, when they do something well, is they go, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. To someone we love, we will say, I'm proud of you. But that person won't go back to you, be like, oh, you're proud? That's pride. You said proud. No one says that. So what is this thing that Paul is proud of? What is this thing that he is so boastful of? So much so, so much so that he'd rather die than get rid of it. I'd rather die than get rid of this. Well, it's not preaching and it's not the gospel. That's not what he's talking about. In verse 16 it says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Whoa, do you mean he's not proud of the gospel? Of course that's not it. You wouldn't get that from any of his words literally in any of the scriptures. The grounds for boasting that he is referring to aren't those things. Because woe to me if I do not preach the gospel means Paul and no other preacher, mind you, has made any contribution to the gospel. No one has made any contribution to the gospel. The gospel was given by God. Paul had nothing to do with that. So what about the preaching of it then? No. No to that too. Paul didn't volunteer to preach. He didn't go, I'd like to preach, God. He can claim no credit for preaching. He was compelled to preach. He was going down the road to Damascus because he wanted to kill more Christians and a light hit him so hard that he fell to the ground and it would be Jesus who would say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? From there, the Lord would command Paul to take the message, the gospel message to the Gentiles. He recognizes this. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart 
before I was born and who called me by his grace. Any preacher worth his salt knows that the fire put inside you is put inside you from the outside. You don't muster up that fire on your own. Jeremiah the prophet would be getting all these messages from God, but when he spoke it, everyone hated him. They would ridicule him. They would mock him. And he said to himself, no more, no more preaching. I'm just getting abused left and right. I don't need this. And was that it? Did it end for Jeremiah? No. He says in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, if I say, I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. There really is no choice for the preacher. Paul also thinks of this as, if he stops, there is going to be a great disaster that would come upon him if he does not do his duty. This is his duty, to preach. So where's the boasting in that? None. There is none. That's his point. There's no boasting in the gospel. That wasn't something he made up. It was given to him. There's no boasting in his preaching. That was a call given to him. In verse 17, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He continues, Sure, if I did this of my own accord, of my own choice, I could claim some reward, but I can't. I didn't do this willingly. I never chose this. This was entrusted to me so that I could steward it. This is really humbling, right? I mean, especially for the preacher. The preacher has nothing to boast about just because he's a preacher. Who called him? Who gave him the words to speak? It's not himself. There's nothing to boast about there. The word for stewardship means task. It's a task that's given to the preacher to preach. He is Christ's slave. He is his doulos. And in this particular context, this is not the special boast that he is referring to. I'll take a side note here and just again remind you what it says in chapter 9. There are wages that he would claim in the earlier verses. He is not saying not to pay him for preaching. In fact, if we go on further to teach churches that those who preach, uh, that he will go on to teach churches that those who preach well or the doctrine well are worthy of twice the pay. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he would say, let the elders who rule well be considered, of, uh, considered worthy of double honor. That word honor is Timé, which is, it's, it's what it sounds like, Timé, Timé, which um, means pay. Double pay, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The word for honor is synonymous with compensation. If an ox does a good job treading out the grain, he will obviously get to eat more grain because he's treading out more grain. So this is not what he's talking about. So what is his boasting grounded in? Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He had to preach, but he didn't have to preach free of charge. 
And how was he so privileged? How did he have so much freedom as to have this ability to boast? Preaching without pay for his privilege. The gospel gave him rights, but he chose not to use them. It wasn't only the preaching that got him excited. It was the fact that he could preach and charge nothing for it. It's not something he had to do, but something that he chose to do. He's showing the Corinthians, look at these rights that I have, these things that I deserve. These things belong to me, but I have not made use of any of it. I outright refused it. That is what's so exciting to the point of being boastful in my ministry is what Paul is saying. There's an attitude difference that you start to see. Here, the world, the world that we live in today, the world is clamoring, and young, young Christians will do this all the time. The world is clamoring with, what can I get away with doing? I deal with a lot of these, these kind of questions as well, and by a lot, I mean almost every one of you who have come to me have asked me this question. Is this a sin? Am I allowed to do this? Is God going to be mad if I pick this away? That's what we are clamoring about. That's what our minds are engaged with. But Paul, on the other hand, is excited about what can I lay aside for the gospel? What can I give up for the sake of loving my family? So here are the basic two schools of thoughts that we're presented with as we end the year. What will be the basis and platform that we will jump off of to enter 2021? Will it be, what can I get away with? Or will it be, what can I lay aside? And Paul didn't see this first by himself. He saw it in Christ our Savior. It's Christ our Savior and our God. It's the condescension of God shown in Isaiah chapter 6 where the seraphim would cover themselves because they could only cry, holy, 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 because the Lord God would be descending off of his throne to come to us in a form of a servant to serve and not be served to die for sin, which we should have died, the punishment that we should have gotten, he would take on. But to rise again in glory, making a way for those that would follow him. These are our Savior's footsteps that Paul is following. These are the Savior's footsteps that we also ought to follow and obey. And it's because of this great hope that we can also say, this is how we will live, and this is how we will die, following our Lord Jesus' footsteps. Let's take this to heart as we end the year. This is how we will live, this is how we will die, and let the Word of God be the launching pad as we enter into a new year. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and this season, the season of much learning, of how we are humbled 
by our selfishness, how, Lord, our attitudes were not like Christ's, but, Lord, how you teach us gently by your word and by your Holy Spirit of how we can be like Christ, guiding us every step of the way, personally and corporately in this church. We ask, God, that your Holy Spirit will continue to do work within us and help us to be humble, to accept your instruction and your guidance. Let's take this time to pray and really ask in prayer if we have been saying and our attitude is more of what can I get away with, how far that falls short of the way of Christ. And rather ask God to transform your heart so that you can say now, what can I lay aside for the love of my sister, for the love of my brother, to glorify God. Let's take this time to pray.